Hi, I'm Dr. Jamil Sayaj. And on this podcast, we're going to talk about some deep stuff. I'm here to tell you that you're amazing. And often, the only person who can't see that is you. No matter who you are, what you do, or where you're from, there's greatness in you. Let's talk about it. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Jamil Sayaj and welcome to the Transformation Starts Today podcast where I interview leaders, champions, and high performers from all walks of life as they share their stories, the lessons they've learned along the way, and empowering perspectives to help you create an extraordinary life without regret starting today. Today we have with us Jesse Kenzer. Jesse Asya Kenzer is author of the award-winning book, Don't Just Sit There, Do Nothing, Healing, Chilling, and Living with the Tao Te Ching. Jessie was born in the Soviet Union, where her family had suffered for generations. She escaped at the age of eight and eventually settled in Brooklyn. A former reporter and actress, Jessie's writing has appeared in USA Today, Washington Post, The New York Times, New York Daily News, The Wall Street Journal, The Independent, Los Angeles Times, Huffington Post, and many other publications. She is also a speaker and spiritual teacher and has been interviewed on podcasts and TV programs across the country. Jessie lives with her husband, two daughters, and two cats in Dobbs Ferry, New York. Her upcoming book is called Unlocking Your Inner Zelensky, Lessons We Can All Learn From an Unexpected Leader. Jessie, it's such an honor and a privilege to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to speak with you as well. <laughs> Excuse me. How's your morning going? It's going well. Uh, the kids are at school. I got to exercise and meditate. And now here we are. Perfect. Perfect way to like segue into the day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so for my listeners who maybe don't know you yet, they're not familiar with your work. Can you share with us your story, how you got to where you are today, kind of where you came from, the lessons you learned and what inspired you to do what you do now? Sure. Um, so I through Taoist uh, uh, in my practice and the way I live. Um, you know, I was born Jewish in the Soviet Union, which didn't mean anything other than, you know, systemic oppression, systemic anti-Semitism. Soviet Union, it was a tough place. And I think we can all see that today just by what's going on with Russia because um, oppression takes such a long time, unfortunately, to to leave, to dissipate. And so we're still seeing all of that today. So being born into that arena, I didn't really have much of an identity other than a cog in the machine, sort of, so to speak, because, you know, you were, it was really not about the individual. It was about the whole, the system, and you were systemized very early. So you ended up in a um, government daycare from the time you were, you know, an infant and then straight to school six days a week. So really, I had a lot going on in my head that wasn't mine. But it, it's taken a lifetime. So I'm in my 40s now. It's taken a lifetime to to take bits and pieces of that away. And so what happened was my family was able to escape. We did end up in America um, by way of various other countries. Uh, as anyone who is an immigrant or is a child of immigrants knows that there's a whole confusion that happens with identity. It just happens because how can it not happen, right? So you're you, your ancestry comes from one place, you end up going through other countries, you end up in another place. Now, the pull of America was very strong. I mean, in the 90s, we all wanted to be like the cool American teenager. And I was succeeding in many ways. But the problem was, 
I had to disown many parts of myself and that caught up with me. And I ended up with real um, debilitating panic attacks and anxiety attacks. I was at the top school doing my best again, something I think a lot of immigrant um, kids can relate with, like trying to, um, you know, live up to the family expectations and make it worthwhile, the whole journey being worthwhile. So the problem was, the problem is to this day that in our society, we look at the external things as proof of what, you know, of how successful somebody is, right? So I was doing the same thing. I was in college. I was with my panic attacks, anxiety attacks. I was bulimic at the time. I was dealing with a secret eating disorder. And I knew that I was really, um, I, I wasn't just suffering. I was falling. Like I knew that there was, there had to be an, a way for me to change things around because I couldn't live very long the way I was living. And I found the Tao Te Ching pretty much at my bottom. I was just kind of searching for anything and everything that could help me. I love self-help books. Now I write self-help books and spiritual books. And I, um, I read a lot of them. But for me, you know, the simplicity of the Tao Te Ching is really, it was in such stark contrast to all the pressures I felt from various societies, from within my own family, from the external uh, society of our culture. Uh, you know, I, there's so much pressure to be something that the Tao telling you that actually it's okay to be nothing. It was really, really refreshing. And so that's something I held on to since then. And I was able to rebuild my life in a different way, in a way that suited me better. And eventually as a middle-aged mother in the suburbs, you know, we hit the pandemic and I turned back to a lot of the tools that helped me in my original struggle. And then I started to write about them. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Can you elaborate on, for those who haven't heard of it, what is the Tao Te Ching? Yes. Thank you for asking that because we sometimes, uh, you know, we, we talk to each other as if everybody knows. And of course, not everyone has to know because uh, how much content do we have nowadays, right? Like it's hard to break through. <laughs> um, the Tao Te Ching means the book of the way. And it comes from ancient China, 6th century BC, it's said to have written by a man named Lao Tzu, but Lao Tzu just means old guy. So nobody actually knows who wrote it. And that's kind of the point. A book like this about the, the being versus doing or the accepting what is, going with the natural way. So it's called the book of the way. And yet the Tao itself, the word Tao is often used synonymously with God. But I love this version of God, Tao, because it's a verb. It's a way instead of a noun or a person so that you start imagining. Um, for those of us who come from Western religions, it's really hard to get rid of that person in the sky that yeah. you start imagining. Um, and it's a really, for me, a refreshing way to look at God as Tao, which is way, or universe. It's the becoming, it's the unfolding. And so the whole idea of the Tao Te Ching, the book of the way, is once you find that way, you align with that way, you can lead a much more easeful, peaceful, flowing life. Mm, beautifully expressed. Yeah, I love the, you know, one of my mentors and teachers, he talks about, somebody said to him, essentially, do you believe in God? And he said to, and he was a yogi and he, and he spoke for a while. And one of the aspects he talked about was he said, don't make God a noun. And the, and the guy said, why do you say that? And he says, because when you make God a noun, you kill it because nouns don't grow. And he said, only verbs grow. And, and it's a process and it's consistently unfolding. 
And when I took that and kind of further thought about it, every everything, everyone is a verb. There is There are no nouns. Nouns are just like these constructs that we look at something, a person, place, a thing, an idea, and we think of it as some static, unchanging thing. So you pick up a rock and you say, here's a rock or here's a person. But that person, that rock at an atomic level is not the same rock and person that it was X amount of seconds, days, years ago, because it's always turning over. It's always changing. And there's that expression. I think it's a Zen Buddhist expression, but either way, it says you, you, know, you can never put your foot into the same river twice. You know, it's always right. turning over. <laughs> That's right. And actually, verse one, I'll, I'll go into my own book. And don't just sit there, do nothing. Verse one of the Tao Te Ching says exactly that. It says, Ways that, that can be told are not the eternal ways. Names that can be named must change with time and place. The nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. Naming is the origin of all particular things. So the whole idea is anytime you try to pin something down, you lose it or you limit it. You limit it. And so, yes, the, to me, to think of Tao, I always try to align with the Tao. So, you know, um, I have no problem with God as a as a as an idea but it's been so burdened by so many different practices religions wars <laughs> and um so so to me it's a it's a burdened word that is not fresh the Tao, you know try it I, i'll say to your listeners try it it may be a refreshing approach to thinking of this bigger energy that exists everywhere and also within us it's a really refreshing way to feel the movement of that. Yeah, I know there are, I believe this is true in Islam and in maybe Judaism, but in many religions, this idea of trying to talk about name God, you're basically trying to put a form on the formless. You're trying to take the infinite and bring it down and capture it in the finite. And that can't be done by definition. And so like you said, anything that we say to put the label on it isn't it. <laughs> and so, yeah. And in my book, and don't just say there's nothing, when I wrote about it, I was like, okay, well, it says like the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. And what, what the heck am I doing? Like, why am I trying to write about it? You can't write about it. But then I explained like very early on in the book, the point is to just serve as a pointer. Yeah. I am not giving you the Tao. You give yourself the Tao. You find it for yourself. And in fact, the Tao Te Ching, the book of the way also says everyone must find their own way. There's no one way which is another very refreshing way of thinking versus systems that become stale after a while, not because of the ideas. Like I love, I'm a Jew who loves the words of Jesus Christ. Like if you read some of the teachings of the Christ, they're beautiful teachings. It's not the, the beauty and the, of the teachings themselves that became the problem. It's what became a problem once more people and more people and more ego got got in the way. And that's what I think happened to a lot of religions. I'm not picking on just one. It's just what happens because we humans have egos and that's fine. But when we try to take something esoteric and beautiful and then we put our ego stamps on it, it gets messed up after a while. Yeah. And so to me, it's so refreshing that the Tao Te Ching, it's because it's not really a religion, the book of the way you know, it, it is, there is Taoism as a religion. It's one of the many books, but it can be practiced as a philosophy. That's how I use it, a philosophy in my life. And this idea of there is no one way. It's not like I'm writing a book and I'm telling you, this is the way you need to live your life. What I did was I, I took this book with its verses. It has very wise verses that you can 
think about for years um, to try to get the meaning of them. And I took these verses and I interpreted them the way I saw them play out in my own life. So I have stories from my own life, from my own struggles and humiliations and how the Tao helped me recover, helped me better understand my messes. Yeah, yeah. You know, you reminded me of an expression, this idea of, you know, the greatest teachers, they point where to look, but they don't tell you what to see. I love that. And so it's coming from that space of you will, like you said, you know, the Tao is within each of us. And so you'll find it in you, but maybe there could be like a guidepost. There could be, hey, it's in this direction. <laughs> it's, this is kind of what I can point you to, but you're only going to find it within yourself. You're not going to find it outside. No, and I think that, you know, I'm a big Ram Das fan as well. Um, for those who don't know, Ram Das is, um, uh, I mean, he's passed, but he was a scholar who spent a lot of time in India and then came back and brought a lot of those teachings here to the West, to America. And he used to say all the time, like, anything you're looking for, like, I'm here, I'm playing this speaker and you're playing this audience, but really what we're all doing is just turning to the truth within ourselves. Mm. Yeah, something that comes up, you said it earlier, and I think it's a really good segue into the next part of this conversation that I'd love to have with you, external versus internal success. And I think that, you know, so many of us, the way I I, I kind of uh, internalize it is we're walking around wearing a mask and the mask is saying, who do I need to be for you to love me, for me to be normal, for me to feel accepted and validated and part of the in crowd or whatever it is. And even when we think we win that game, we still lose because yes, the people might, we think, oh, they like us, but we know deep down, no, no, they like our mask. They don't know us. And so we have all these people who are out and about and let's say the external success that you're alluding to, whether that be finances or material possessions or a certain status or whatever it is that people have spent their time accumulating. It's one thing if we accumulate something just out of a, you know, a, a desire for it. Oh, this would be fun. It's something else if we accumulate something from the headspace of, I need this in order to be good enough or to be accepted or people to respect me or whatever it is. And so from that space, you have a lot of people that have everything they thought they needed in order to be happy or to feel successful and they still feel empty or they still feel some kind of void or they still feel like it's never enough. I One of my teachers was Dr. Wayne Dyer and he talked about how, where is the peace and more is better? And he said, there is no peace and more is better. Oh, I love, love and, Dr. Wayne Dyer, who, by the way, was a big um, fan of the Tao Te Ching himself and wrote, change wow. your thoughts, change your life, right? Yeah. And so just from this space of where's the peace and more is better, most of us live our life thinking that there, wherever we're trying to get to, is better than here. And the thing is, there is just different. There isn't better. And so when we realize that you can have all the money, all the stuff that you want, but not coming from the space that it's going to actually change you in any fundamental way as like a being. Uh, wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the other thing is there is no there because there's only now. Mm -hmm. It's a really trippy um, idea to wrap your head around. And it's been used a lot, like be here now. But if you really understand it, it's life-changing. And this is why Dr. Wade Dyer's Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life was such a great title for a book about the philosophy of the Tao, the philosophy of the way. It's this 
understanding it's all you need to change is your perception. You are perfect. You don't need to change yourself. You don't even need to change your human needy ego. And, you know, we're, we're all, we're here, we're spirit, but we're here in the physical with our hangups and neuroses. We're here like that. That's how we are. We're not going to ever be able to escape it in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. But um, once you understand that there is no there, like there's never going to be a there. Once you're there, you're still here. Where are you going? Like you are just in the present moment. And so if you spend your life planning something out there and when you get there, you'll be happy when you get there, you'll be whatever, successful, done, you know, you're setting yourself for a disappointment because you're never going to be done. You're always an unfolding. And um, what you said about being accepted, I found it as a huge gift for myself. And I realize that now to have come to America as a refugee, because, and you know, a Russian speaking refugee right on the heels of the Cold War, I was not easily accepted. And I really lost belonging. So in the Soviet Union, for all its um, bad, there's nothing that's just bad, right? So for all its bad, there was a unity because <clears throat> society functioned, the children were taught to function as a unit. So I had belonging in my early life, even if it wasn't naturalistic it came from a society but so then i lost it really lost it like in america is this like dorky not english speaking kid with all the wrong clothes poor you know and i think that loss as jarring as it was and maybe it messed me up for a little bit it was also a real gift because to be honest with you i never found belonging in crowds of people again Mm. and what that made me do is figure out how to belong to myself and figure out what belonging actually means. And if, and it allowed me to become my real true self because I wasn't playing any part. I, w- I didn't belong anyway. And so I, you know, I have a chapter in the book called um, fly your freak flag. I was looking for it. I, oh, there it is. Fly your freak flag. And it's about how at some point I did find my friends and they were all just like, weirdos and very idiosyncratic people and it was a there was a beauty in that that Mm. you will find your people eventually they just may not look like the people on tv or in the at that time it was like magazine covers like you will find people that match yourself and it's actually it's so much more freeing because they match the real you yeah and then and then the other aspect of it all is practicing non-attachment you know friends come and go uh, you belong to someone, then you don't. And it's really finding the center that that cannot be stirred by external things like friends or not friends or whatever. It's just your center, your truth. And if you can find and anchor yourself in it, you're, you're set. Yeah, something that comes to mind in your sharing. So I like to tell my, my clients and just kind of the people that I speak with about these kind of topics. So... In my mind, the master plays on two levels. And I don't mean necessarily like in the, in the Tao, like the main character is called like the master that represents yeah. everybody. <laughs> like the sage. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it is referring to that, but I don't mean, that's not like where I kind of got it from. But this idea of the master plays on two levels. And one way to think about it is this idea of if we were to say each of us are a spiritual being having a human experience, each of those, that second part's often left out. <laughs> and so it's like, if we were to say, as a spiritual being, I am whole, perfect, and complete. But as it, as as the being having the human experience, I could be better. And so from yeah. that space, it's coming from that space of, like you said, I'm never finished. And compared to the 
made up ideal version of me in my head, at least I can always strive for that. What, what comes up is uh, Matthew McConaughey, the actor, there was a, I think it was an Oscar uh, he was accepting uh, years ago and you can go on YouTube and look it up and he was giving uh, his speech and so he tells a story where somebody said to him, who's your hero? And he sat with him for a while. And the answer that he came to was my hero is me 10 years in the future. Yes, I remember and, this yeah. speech. And, and then somebody says like 10 years later, oh, like, are you your hero now? And he goes, no, because my hero is 10 years older. <laughs> I'll never become my hero. But it's always something to chase after, to strive for. And so I think there's like that dichotomy of being whole, perfect and complete in your essence and who you actually are. But in this human experience of whatever character we play, it's like, all right, from this space, I can always be better. From this space, I can always be more. From this space, there's always something I can become, even though in the actuality, there's nowhere to go. <laughs> it's like that, that part, like the Tao talks about the idea that truth often seems paradoxical, even though it isn't. It's just when you put it into language, it comes out that way. Yeah, and the Tao Te Ching is full of paradoxes. It is a very, you know, I think that was um, verse two is the one you're you're uh, referring to it says um people see beauty in what they call beauty that way they know of the ugly people see good in what they call good that way they know of the bad existence and emptiness are concepts that make sense by comparison long me leads meaning to short high to low so this whole idea of we live in a world of duality because as you said we're spirit living in the physical so physical is full of d duality i also like saying um contrast creates context Mm -hmm. So, um, for us not to strive, it's not realistic. And, you know, I have a chapter there called to want or not to want, because of course, in a lot of these Eastern teachings, like Buddhism, um, you know, teaches that desire is, is the basis of all suffering and there's truth to this. And there's also truth to that. We're always desiring and we're always unfolding. So I think that the, the mastery here, as you say, you know, the mastery of, of being spirit and human form is understanding this and this understanding. Yes. And so like we're after things we want to be better, but I think the beauty also the freedom comes in also practicing non-attachment. Mm -hmm. So I have goals. I'm not a person who's goalless, you know, like I'm, I have a second book coming out. I'm writing my third one. Like I'm not completely just a hippie doing nothing, even though I'd love to be, you know, there's a part of me that would just love to actually do nothing, nothing, nothing. But, you know, I have little kids and <laughs> so we have, but, but the, the truth is the beauty for me, the freedom comes in practicing non-attachment and doing what I need to do and letting it go and not sitting too long attached to the, um, to the, what happens when, you know, to the final picture. Yeah. So I like living in the movement too, in the motion. Um, the end result becomes less important to me. And I find a lot of freedom in that space. Yeah. Something that you just didn't brought up in me was you mentioned earlier this idea that you have all these different, let's say, religions or spiritualities and paths, and they can be when the ego gets kind of its hands on it, it can in a way get manipulated in a, to the point where it it misses the mark, you know, which is like kind of the actual original definition of the word sin, like to miss the mark. And so coming from this space of, I think that for me, the phrase, I think it's the first of the, of the, uh, the first of the four noble truths in Buddhism is life is suffering. And the second is you suffer because you desire. And I think that the, 
it's a mistranslation in the sense that the word desire, the original word I believe is dukkha, and it doesn't actually mean desire in the way we mean it. It's it's closer to wanting or attachment. And so this idea that desire, my understanding, means of the Father. And so when we desire in the sense of I am wanting to create, I'm wanting to manifest something, that in, the, that in and of itself, to me, nothing to do with suffering. It's the wanting of I need this. Like this yep. is something that will complete me or make me something that I am not right now. And I think that's when we come from that space, it's like saying life can be experienced as suffering and you suffer because you're attached and you resist and you fight the flow. And then it's like, or another way of saying is you fight the Tao, <laughs> you fight the way. You fight. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And you know, it's, it's such a, um, it's a lovely thing that we get to think about and uh, pinpoint because I think you do miss the mark if you just decide that desire itself is suffering because unless you renunciate life the way we live it in the modern modern world and you go and you do become a monk and they do beautiful things monks in many different traditions uh nuns like if you go and and really devote your life to worship and to god and to you could be you know in tibet you could be in india you could be you know in a christian monastery you could be you know praying to the torah and the hasidic community if you're doing that fine then you rescind all desire and this is what your life is but for the rest of us we have to live in in a world where we need we know we have children we need to feed them and clothe them we have cats somewhere <laughs> behind me <laughs> um and so i actually wrote a lot about that because i as somebody who studied um eastern philosophy it it does you do try to find a way to make it work to your benefit so i had a chapter that i called Man manifestation and i love um I think the Tao also gives a really good clue to how to deal with this desire because it says, be content, rest in your own fullness. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, I, I said, you can only have what you desire when you realize it's not lacking. Mm -hmm. So when you're coming from this place of yearning and you're coming from this place of longing, then you don't realize that actually everything you need is already here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Dr. Wayne Dyer used to talk about this as well. It's not about getting your future and hammering it into place. It's about aligning to what already is, raising yourself in a way, like yeah. you raise children, raising your vibrations, raising your knowledge, raising your, your skill level until you align to what is already yours. That's, that's the way to live to me in a surrendered path forward yeah something that comes up you mentioned there's the people in the kind of the modern world western world and all around they have their kids they have their job they have their things the goals and then you said and then there's the people who say you know what i'm gonna like renounce all that and it reminds me of a story where somebody is speaking to the buddha and i believe it was actually a group and they were saying there were student disciples or students of his and they are of siddhartha and they said um He's basically said, you suffer because you desire, renounce desire. So they laughed and they, they did everything they could to renounce desire. And, but he was teaching them a lesson. And when they came back, they said, okay, we've done it. We've renounced our desire. And he goes, okay, but now you're desiring not to desire. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, and then they were like, what the hell do we do with that? <laughs> but even the people who say, I'm going to get rid of all of it and I'm going to go throw myself fully into the scripture. I'm going to go throw myself into a cave somewhere and meditate. That's still a desire. And so from that space, it's not necessarily like we said, the desire itself, the, the longing to create, it's the needing, the attachment that this has to happen or else. And so I would love to go through a couple of passages that I pulled out from the Tao that I think would make really great conversation. The, the first one, at least with the translation I have, talked about the importance of softness versus rigidity. Can you speak to that as it relates to how many people you've experienced go through their life and kind of the detriment of maybe one of them and the benefit of the other? Yes. And um, just to mention, I went through so many different texts. And when I was writing my book based, you know, like it, it was the cornerstone of my book were these verses, right? And then so I had to go through a lot of them just to make sure I was getting the meaning right to the best of my ability, right? And I, I found that they all um, carry a similar note, yeah. even if they're said in different ways. So um, the one of the translations said, whatever is rigid and inflexible is aligned with death. Mm -hmm. Whatever is flexible and moving is aligned with life. And to me, I mean, uh, that could be like, that could be the first book done, you know, like conversation over. <laughs> it tells you everything you need to do right there. You know, that's what I love about these verses. They're, they're so, they're so deep and true. Um, <clears throat> it's also a learning process. So I see like, you know, because I have kids and I see that, Kids, because they're young, they uh, once they figure out their ego, once they they start experiencing it, they get really aligned with it. You know, they really need to be right, and they have this really cute kind of insistence to be right or to win a game or to whatever it is to be on the winning end of things. And you see that you see almost how immature that way of thinking it is. It's okay for them because they're little kids. But if you're so insistent on being right as you get older, that means you actually haven't learned much at all, that like you're still that little child. You're still aligned with that little human ego that needs to be right and on top. So I really love to practice another Zen Buddhist um, idea as the beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the beginner's mind, the possibilities are endless. In an expert's mind, there are few. So when you stay flexible and open and know how little you know, when you accept that position, then you're able to be like that tree that blows with the wind versus being knocked over by a storm because you're refusing to move. This is my position. This is my thoughts, my belief system. It's never changing. And then you're going to be toppled over. It's almost setting yourself up for a fall. So I think, you know, anywhere you look, any successful people whether it's in business or just in life, are people who are able to go with the flow and to move with the movement that is beyond their control, right? We have a zeitgeist. We have um, the movement of people within a family. We need to be flexible to answer to all of life's callings outside of our own. Yeah, it reminds me of, I think, Socrates, and he talked about how to not know and to realize like that all I know is I know nothing <laughs> is the beginning of wisdom. And I believe when I was rereading the Tao for our conversation today, that there's a line in there, at least in the version I have, that says something to that same degree. And when I think about softness and rigidity, it's this distinction in my mind between my way is the way versus my way is a way. 
And when we come from my way is a way, and there's other ways. It was uh, Nietzsche who said, uh, this is my way. What is your way? As for the way, there is no the way. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also coming from that space of, you know, what works, you know, what works for you. And when we attach ourselves to this is what I want, and I look at it as right, what I want, let's say, is the outcome. And how I get there is the vehicle that I use. And I have, before I get started, maybe a mental image of this is the vehicle and it's going to get me from A to Z. And then life happens along the way and the car breaks down metaphorically at K. And now I'm getting upset and frustrated because it's not supposed to be this way. And I'm resisting because my internal picture and expectation of that journey, the rigidity, isn't matching what life is showing me. And just like a tree, it could be like a bamboo tree or some other kind of tree that's flexible. So the wind blows and it bends, but it doesn't break. And then it shoots back up. But if you're really brittle and dry and no, no, like I'm not moving, you get a strong enough wind and you just break. And so can we, as you know, everyone is listening, can we come from a space of my way is a way, not the way. There might be a better way than what I'm currently using. So that's why it might be valuable to listen to what other people have to say. <laughs> and because they might be onto something that you haven't considered yet. But then coming from that space of if any, if you're going to be attached, not in like a bad way, but be attached to what you want, but don't be attached to how you get there. If you're, if you allow flexibility for how you get there, it's incredible what can happen because you say, all right, something came up that blocked what I was going to do. All right. Well, well, what else can get me there? And then you get there and it's like, you have uh, like, I'm, I'm going to use this as a metaphor. Imagine A to Z as an alphabet. And I get into my car at A to get to my goal at Z thinking I'm just going to have a nice smooth drive all the way through car breaks down at E and then I could be really upset and frustrated and wait and wait because like this car has got to get me there. And then maybe I never arrive where I want to go. Or I can say, all right, the car broke down at E. It seems like it's kind of finished. All right. I'm going to taxi cab over here, fly over there, get into the boat, do this, run a marathon. <laughs> and then I finally arrived. I met friends along the way. I had experiences along the way. All these beautiful stuff came up that were not built into my plan originally. And it, and it could end up being better than I ever could have imagined if I allow it to be. And so it's, I find that level of softness very refreshing as it relates to how life could be. And oftentimes it's so much greater than we anticipate it. I, I just think that's how life is. I think that, you know, if you look at any path of anything, nothing went in a linear direct line, not usually, you know, um, and I also like the quote detours, blocks are detours in a better direction. Mm, yeah. And it's not, you know, sometimes when something is not working and it feels like you're pushing a boulder up a hill over and over again, to me, that's life speaking to me. Yeah. Something needs to change, right? So um, I think that when you're living in a way that is in line with what the Tao says, with being flexible, those who are flexible are disciples of life. Those who are brittle are disciples of death. That's a, that's one of the one of the translations, one of the many translations for that verse. So when you're living in a way that's flexible, you let life speak to you. Like mm -hmm. you said, you may have a goal, a destination that you want to get to, but along the way you take cues from just from from everything, from within yourself and from life, the Tao, the universe itself. Because sometimes messages are being delivered to us and we're if we're rigid and blocked and set in what we're doing and how we're doing it, we're not going to let them in. Mm. 
So I, I love what you just said. It just sparked this story that I heard years ago. And this guy is basically in an office building and this giant alarm starts going off and there's a big like tsunami, like flood coming in. And so the guy, everyone's being evacuated and they go, they go, come on, sir, let's go. And the guy goes, no, no, it's okay. God will save me. And he waits and the water starts to come in. So he goes up to the second floor and it's a, it's a two story building. So he's on the second floor and he's waiting and the water gets so high. It's at the window and a raft comes by and the, and the firefighters see the guy and they go, Oh my God, sir, thank God we saw you like jump in. And he goes, no, no, it's okay. God will save me. And then they're looking at him like he's crazy and they have to go. And so they go and the water starts to come up again. So he gets to the roof and he's standing on the roof. And as the water is getting up to his neck, a helicopter flies by, drops a ladder and they go, sir, like, come on up. And he says, it's okay. God will save me. And then he drowns and there, and then he's in heaven and he's in front of God and he goes, God, you know, why didn't you save me? And God sent, God said, I sent you a boat. I sent you a raft. I did all these things. Like, <laughs> and it's the idea that his mindset was God saving me would look a certain way. Right. And because he wasn't flexible in how God could save him, <laughs> he died physically. And so it's like, where are we ignoring the sign? Like, you know, you, you ask, you, you pray for something, let's say you hope something's going to happen and it shows up in a way that you didn't anticipate. If you're flexible, you recognize it and you go, oh, this could also get me to where I want to go. But if it's got to look a certain way, it can be right in front of your face and you'll miss it. And it's just an exciting way to live, by the way, to allow Tao, life, universe, God to communicate with you. It's an exciting way to live because it helps me surrender so yes, I am Jesse with my ideas and whatever, but I know that there's that greater part of me. It helps me surrender more often to that part and to trust that I know some things, I don't know all things like we talked about. And so maybe like I've been very led in my writing, for example, I started, you know, I wasn't going to be a writer. I was, a, uh, I was trying to be an actress before, um, you know, I had some, some success, not as much as I would have wanted to. And um, I threw in the towel, I got married, I had kids and <clears throat> I started writing and I was writing stuff. I was writing personal essays because I was called to share stories of immigration and et cetera. And I was writing for like New York Times, Washington Post. And I knew that there was more. I, I knew that I wanted to write something that a person could use to help them on their own path or maybe to help them when they're struggling because I had a long period of struggle. And so that's what I did. I wrote that. And uh, one of the things that happened to me in my life when I was an actress, I was in a movie with the now very well-known Vladimir Zelensky. Now, back then he was, a, he was, a, he was a, actually it was his first big feature film. And a part of it was being, um, being created and shot in New York where I was. And it was in Russian. And so Russian speakers like me, who were also actors, got small parts in it. And then mm -hmm. the big stars were flown in. And I wrote about him in chapter 16 of my book. And it's funny enough, like, you know, this was before the war, clearly, the war we know is going on now. And it was called, the chapter was called Use It. And it was about me watching this man who was just like this regular actor and how once he became president of Ukraine, I took notice of him because I had been in his movie. 
And I have a whole section that most of that chapter is called My Zelensky, which is very funny because, you know, um, this book came out four days after the war between Russia and Ukraine, when Russia invaded Ukraine, that was, uh, I believe, February 24th. My book came out March 1st. So it was literally just on the heels of that starting. And all of a sudden I had this chapter about filming a movie with Vladimir Zelensky and then watching him after and just being really floored by everything he's been able to accomplish in a short time. And then this man is, you know, this maybe the greatest leader of our time, this wartime leader that everyone's looking to. And so that birthed my next book, which is called Unlocking Your Inner Zelensky Lessons We Can All Learn from an unexpected leader. And so that book comes out with St. Martin's, which is a pretty big publisher, which is, was pretty exciting for me as a writer to get a deal with a big publisher. So that comes out in October. But my whole point was, I couldn't have planned any of this if I wanted to. Who would plan a war as part of like something that gets somebody that they looked up to known to the point where she can write a book about them? Like nobody would plan that out. It's so narcissistic if you really think about it. But all of these unfoldings showed me my next step very naturally. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, clearly I've written a lot about him already. I know about him. I'm going to research more and I'm going to pitch this book. And this book got, you know, got picked up really quickly. Um, and I realized what's the point of even, you know, I have visions of things that I want, but like you said, I don't, I don't even bother with trying to figure out that straight line. Cause I know it's not going to be like that. I just see that any of my natural aligned success that has come has come from my surrender to what's going on. Yeah, it, it reminded me of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor. He has a uh, perspective. The obstacle is the way. That which impedes the way is the way. <laughs> yeah. and so something comes up in our life that was unexpected and it appears on the surface to be a block or an obstacle or like, I didn't want that to happen. But the reality is it happened and now you can move with it or you can try to resist it, but it already happened. And so if you move with it, you you use it. It becomes part of the way. Yeah. That's right. Like Ram Das had a book called Grit for the Mill. Mm -hmm. You know, everything is just everything is everything just goes into that mill. It's all, you know, and I, I as a writer, I, I think that way a lot because like anything terrible or chaotic or interesting happens. Well, there I got, I have something to write about. And it's a, it's a terrible way to think in a way, but at, at, at the same time, it's a lesson that anyone can use, whatever their profession. It's like, how can this just make me better? Yeah. I think that's a powerful question that we can all be asking ourselves when anything happens you know, it's like, how can this make me better? How can, what can I learn from this? How could this actually make the whole thing even better? Like you said, something happens and maybe in the moment, oh, this is terrible. What a setback. But let's say you're a writer or let's say you're a storyteller, which we all are. <laughs> and we yeah. say, oh, this, I'm going to actually learn something from this. It's going to help me later. Or this is going to make my life way more interesting. Or what a story this is going to make, you know, however we're choosing to, to internalize it can shift our whole reaction to it. And one thing that comes up, there's a uh, another passage I pulled out here that I wanted to bring up, and it goes with what you were just talking about. For the master, things arise, and she lets them come. Things disappear, and she lets them go. She has, but doesn't possess. Can you speak to the, your interpretation? Yeah, I love I love that one, and it almost brings tears to my eyes because I use that one to write about my children. Mm. Um, because. Uh, 
I'm just looking for it in the in the book because I love that one. So it, it was it was about really about not holding on to anything, right? Like things arise and she lets them come, things disappear and she lets them go. And it's this, um, I think part of that verse is she has but doesn't possess. Mm-hmm. And it's more of that non-attachment that we're talking about, which is really hard to do as, as a parent, for example, when you're raising kids, you're, you're attached to so much for them, them themselves, what you want for them. Uh, uh, you know, every, a lot of us put everything that we have that maybe we didn't get and we put that all in our children. And it's really, um, it's a more conscious approach to parenting to understand that they are their own people mm-hmm. and to practice non-attachment even with your own children because they are their own people. And um, this understanding that they're with you right now, but they're not yours, mm-hmm. it's really helpful and it's helped me in other parts of my life. Like, for example, a book. You write a book, you pour yourself into it, and then you have to let it go and how other people use it or misuse it. You know, um, it helps you care less about the reactions. Mm-hmm. When I was writing more uh, shorter articles, personal articles that would get written like in the New York Times, whatnot, I had all kinds of mixed reviews. I had people saying like, oh, this horrible woman. I remember reading and getting my feelings hurt um, a few times and, and I, until I hardened myself to it in a way, but also maybe wisened up. So things arise and I let them come. Things disappear. She lets them go. So, okay, one moment I have success and the next moment I have criticism. Who cares? If you can treat both, there's another verse in the Tao that talks about standing with both your feet on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it is really helpful in both success and failure because you know somebody asked me are you like so proud of yourself that you wrote a book and I was like no I mean I'm not I don't practice I, don't, I live the Tao way I don't I'm proud of myself for being able to to stay true to myself it's not about any specific accomplishment and because I'm able to be there whatever, nobody can knock me out of that center. Nothing negative can knock me out of it. And the positive, I don't let myself fly too high with that because that would just be the ego taking over. And that's the stuff coming in. I let them come. The stuff disappears. She lets them go. It's a really, really, to me, it talks about equanimity in life. Mm -hmm. Because if we're always riding with a roller coaster and we let our emotions and our energy go up and down according to the events of life, mm-hmm. it's going to be a bumpy ride. Absolutely. You know, um, you know, similar to yourself, like when I write a book or when I am putting a video out or making a podcast or anything, putting myself out in some way to be seen, <clears throat> some people are going to see whatever we put out and they're going to say, oh my God, I loved what you did. And somebody else is going to say, wow, that was the worst thing I've ever like experienced. Like, <laughs> you, you insulted me by doing this. <laughs> and with that in mind, like you said, the roller coaster idea, if we internalize external praise, the challenge with that is we're letting it in, but because we're in a duality in this physical, you're also going to let in the flip. So if external praise means some, something to you, positive, then that means external criticism is going to mean something to you 
negatively. But if you can say, hold on a second, this person who's saying like my book changed their life and this other person who's saying like they hated my book, that actually has nothing to do with me because it's the same book and two people have a 180 degree different experience. So it's you are saying that you really enjoyed my book, but that's something about you. And the other person is saying they hated my book, but that's something about them. And then we don't take it personally either way. And like you said, now we're grounded on, you know, our feet are on the ground and it's not, I think, yeah, I think in the Tao, it says to be like on your tiptoes or something. It's like, you're off. Yes. You can just be grounded. Yeah. I call that chapter penis on tippy toes. Cause there's just so many people <laughs> that you see like that. The ones that can't, they try always to make more of themselves. Mm. Um, and it's unnecessary. And, and the other thing is we as human beings are so much smarter like, like we're smarter and they're smarter. The other human beings are also smarter than we give them credit for. So people can feel fakeness. Yes. So when you're trying to make so much more of yourself, we all feel that we pick up on that and it's not necessary. And people respond much better to authenticity anyway. Mm-hmm. But like you said, all anyone's really doing is perceiving what they choose to perceive in anything you create. Like all we're really doing is acting as mirrors for each other. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And this idea of having but not possessing, it brings to mind two things. One, it's my it's probably my favorite quote in the Bhagavad Gita, which is a holy book in India for anyone who hasn't heard of it. There's a line that says, detachment is not that you own nothing, it's that nothing owns you. Mm-hmm. And so when we come from that space, again, going back to like the Buddhist idea, desire isn't the problem. It's the clinging, the attachment to it. So detachment isn't, I need to go into some cave and get rid of all my possessions and literally just have nothing and beg for the food. It's coming from the space of you can have everything that you want in the material world, but do you own it or does it own you? And from that space, if you couldn't lose it, if you couldn't give it away without having this like visceral feeling of, no, no, that's mine. Like I need it. Then it owns you. And there's a Buddha story where um, he says something like, when you have a river to cross and there's a boat, you're like, oh my God, perfect, exactly what I need. You get on the boat, you go across the river. But when you get to the other side, the boat has served its usefulness. You don't then pick it up and carry it on your back as you walk into the forest because you leave it there. You don't need it anymore. But how many of us were carrying around all these possessions that actually own us without us intending to And it's making our, you know, using the metaphor, it's making our voyage heavy. I'm carrying all this weight. You know, Wayne Dyer said it beautifully where he said, um, each of us has a giant bag that we're carrying around over our shoulder. And this bag is a sack of manure. And it represents, (laughs) it says it represents our past. And it's really heavy. And we're carrying it around, lugging it around. And every now and then we stop and we put it down and we reach in and we smear some all over our face. (laughs) And then we say, I don't understand. Why does my life smell so bad? (laughs) Coming from that space of you're carrying your past, but your past let you go a long time ago. And if you carry it with you, just like the Buddha story of you're carrying this boat on dry land with no water in sight because it's your boat. It served its usefulness. Have it, but don't possess it. That's right. Yeah. Right. That's like what the Tao says. She has, but she doesn't possess. And the Tao talks about like, less. Uh, Wayne Dyer actually said, what a beautiful thing the Tao, he, I, I rewatched recently his lecture about the Tao Te Ching and he's living the beauty of the Tao. And, and he said, you know, everything we hear in our culture is 
more, more, more. But the Tao says, no, have less. Reduce what you have, decrease what you want. And I think I find it very interesting because that boat, that story that you said, it's like, well, don't we also do that with our possessions? You know, there was a joke, um, I think Jerry Seinfeld in his standup was like, we just get bigger and bigger storage boxes and we call them houses. Just like, you need to get a bigger box, put all our shit in there. And then you need to get more stuff. You need a bigger box. And it's like, we're just like increasing the size of our boxes. It's an interesting way. You know, I'm not, I, I say this with empathy, especially as a mom of kids. And like, we end up with too much crap everywhere, you know? And I, I would love to throw it all out. They're not ready. So, but I do, it, I think about that a lot. Um, how much more do we need? And do we really need to carry all that around all the time? Cause, cause stuff possessions are heavy too. Mm -hmm. That boat is a possession. If it served your, it's use for you, you can put it down. What else do we have in life that we can put down that served its purpose? Yeah. You reminded me of uh, that Jerry Seinfeld thing you said, I think it was George Carlin, the comedian. And he said something like, you ever notice that, you know, <laughs> you have stuff, but other people have shit. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the idea of how we relate to it's our stuff and somehow it's yeah. more important but like you said you know other people like you know we're smart but other people are smart too well from their perspective they have the stuff and we're the one with too much but from our perspective <laughs> no, no no we need all this we have a story behind it a justification for having it and we make it work but like you said bigger and bigger storage boxes kind of makes it hard to move around it kind of makes it hard to uh live your life as freely as you would like to when you're over encumbered by the stuff that you've willingly, but probably unconsciously taken on. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's, it's, um, it owns us. That's when it starts to own us. And yeah. by the way, um, I'm glad you mentioned the Bhagavad Gita because I'm studying it right now. Um, I, I want it to be a part of my next book and, um, cause, uh, Ram Das, who was someone I consider my teacher, I'm talked a lot about the Gita and he studied the Gita and the, and it's, um, it's really beautiful because, um, for those who don't know, it's based, it's a story of what's going on during war. It's a story of a relationship with God and, and how to deal with a war. And then uh, for me, it's like you realize as you're reading it that the war is actually also an internal war. And right now when there's war in front of us, like we see war in the world, it also makes me think what internal wars and struggles do we have going on? And one of those is with the stuff and with all of the, the stuff is just, um, the stuff is just a placeholder for everything else, right? Like we have a lot of boxes put on us very quickly. So I don't even like, you know, I get introduced now like, Oh, this is Jesse. She's a writer. And I realized that I cringe inside and I thought, why do, why do I cringe? I've written because I don't like labels anymore. You know, and the labels, you, they limit me and they limit the, all of us. So if we can find space to live outside all of our labels, all of our stuff, all of the struggles, you know, that's why it's, whether it's meditating or running or a walk in nature, that's why we need those. That's what don't just sit there, do nothing. The, the title as a joke, that's what it's about. We need to take time to do nothing mm -hmm. so that we can let go of all of that. Mm. I think that goes with this next passage of be, and I think you actually said this earlier, be content with what you have, rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. And so when we come from that space of like, like the Gita says, not being detached, 
So now it's like being detached, but not in the sense that like it doesn't own us, but we can own it. So now it's like, okay, I can have all this stuff. But in that moment, maybe you're looking at the sky, a bird is singing, the sunlight's hitting your skin, you're looking into your lover's eyes, a baby is smiling. In that moment, it's it's heaven. In that moment, you're just in this blissful state of in this microsecond, nothing is lacking. In that microsecond, your whole perfect and complete before the thoughts ramp up again and you buy into the inner narrative and the drama and all that. But in that moment, you realize nothing is lacking. And so any anything you'd like to add to that one? Yeah, um, I also use this, this verse, but also this way of thinking um, to manifest. That's why my, my chapter on this is called Manifestation as a joke, like the Taoist approach to manifesting. It's when you realize there's nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. So I say, get it. Do you get it? That you can only have what you desire when you realize it's not lacking. Now, this is one of those paradoxical things that everyone's like, huh? But the the, the thing is, when you're coming from a, from a place of lack and really wanting something, your energy is not lined up with what it is that you're trying to create. So it's really important to not do your actions because we do do our actions towards whatever we're trying to accomplish, not to come from a place of lack. Mm-hmm. It's very important to check the energy with which you are doing whatever it is that you're doing. If you're coming from a place of wholeness and there's a knowingness, you know, um, there's a beautiful Christ quote, right? It's, he said, um, if you have the faith of a mustard seed and you say to the mountain, move, the mountain shall move. You can move mountains with the faith of a mustard seed. So that's not coming from a place of lack. That's coming from a knowing of faith. When you can develop that faith in yourself and in the Tao, in the way that things will line up, and maybe they won't line up the way you think they will, but they will line up, then things fall into your life more easily. It's more like you meet them versus you hunt them down and wrestle them and push that boulder up or catch them. And it's like almost like a violent attainment. Mm. And then and then it's empty at the end. Then you have to do it all over again. Um it's a much more flowing kind of creation yeah. when you're coming from a place of fullness and contentment, even in creating what it is that is not right now in your life. Yeah. I think for everyone who's listening to have a felt experience of this, I'd like to invite you to think back to a time in your life where you just felt so wonderful. It could have been a moment. It could have been a party. It could have been a, just a day that just felt like a perfect day, perfect hour, whatever it was. And in that moment, Think about how you were feeling and how you were showing up in the world. And maybe you were around people. And when you're showing up in that way of like your best is kind of being put forth. Like one of my favorite words is enthusiasm. And when you break it down, it's antetheos or entheos. And it means the God within. And when you radiate enthusiastically, that divine spark, that inner essence that you are, that makes you uniquely you, everyone now is seeing that. Now, let's say there you are putting that light out there. And your energy is great. Your attitude's wonderful. Your your presence is just so wonderful to be around. So there's an expression, like attracts like. If I'm putting that out, there are people, more people are going to want to be around me. There's opportunities that are going to show up. I might ask for something that I'm looking for and people want to help me because they just want to be around me. I, I'll notice opportunities that are there, like we said before, because I'm being soft. And by being soft, it's not, it has to be a certain way. I see things that before I was oblivious to. So there's an expression like the rich get richer. 
and the poor get poorer in the gospel of Matthew, you know, I, I mentioned this actually in the last podcast that I, I, I got to have uh, with a woman named Maria. And this idea that Jesus says in the gospel of Matthew, to those who have more will be given to those who have not all will be taken away. But it's a, it's actually a quote about abundance and scarcity. This idea that to those who live that they have, they're coming from a space of appreciation and abundance and gratitude. So they see the, they see all the stuff. And also giving, I'm just going to add giving yes. because when you're, when you're not living from scarcity, you share more freely as well. Yes. And so you're willing to give and to put out there and you see all that you have. So more is given to you in the sense that you notice more opportunity and more shows up in your world to appreciate and to love. But if you believe you don't have, if you believe that there is better than here, if you believe that you're always lacking, then more, like like Wayne Dyer says, where's the peace and more is better, you're never going to feel the more. So you're always going to feel like you're lacking and that like, why am I never getting ahead? Why is everyone else getting more than I am? And it's always being robbed. And so- And, and that, and it's never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough. Like uh, there's- that teaching is so important and it's so hard to get out of that way of thinking when you're in it. And we've all had moments in it. We've all had moments when we're like in that downward spiral, I call it, where like everything's sucking and nothing's working out and the universe hates me. And it's just like, you know, um, I've had friends who've taken their lives and I understand with compassion as someone who's dealt with depression and everything, I understand what a, what a struggle it is to be in that place. But it is so important to step-by-step step walk your way back out because energy is not, it's not just the spiritual esoteric like little idea. It's, it's the truth. And another example is like for anyone who's ever been in love, like when you're in love, the world is just singing. You walk around and everything's beautiful and everything's great. And it's like, has the world changed or has something inside you changed? It's not really about the in the person you're in love with. It's not about that. It's about what's going on inside of you. Yeah. And so when you're able to create that lens of where you're seeing beauty, where you're seeing, you know, whatever you look for, that's what you will find. Wherever you look, you will find it. So when you when you look for God, you find God. When you look for misery, when you look for lack, you'll find lack. And it both exists. We live right in a dualistic world. So it exists in each of our lives and each of our experiences and everything we see. So, but when you bring in this lens of abundance and enthusiasm, as you said, and you, you create it and find it simultaneously. Mm, absolutely. You know, there's an expression, we don't see the world the way that it is. We see it the way we are. And so when we come from that space, like you said, of, you know, we're in, we're in this state of love. Everything in the external world will be painted with that. It's like the rose-colored glasses. But if you're looking outside and you don't like what you're seeing, as an invitation for everyone who's listening, the external experience that you have is projected from the inside. And so from that space, if we were to look and say, wow, I really don't like everything I'm seeing. I'm really frustrated and angry with all this stuff. It's because you have that inside. And when you can deal with it on the inside, it's no longer reflected on the outside. Like you said earlier, each of us is a mirror. And so from that space, it changes everything. Yeah. And I just like to add, because, you know, there's a lot of talk of spiritual bypassing. It doesn't mean that there's no suffering. Suffering still exists. But guess what? You are so much more potent when you are in a high vibe place. There's so much more. You have nothing to give when you just join in the suffering. You have nothing to give. 
So the best thing I could do for you, for anybody is work on myself. That's why I call it, uh, that's what my book is about. That's why I call it the most important work. The internal work is the most important work. When you elevate yourself, I think that evolution versus revolution is what changes the world. It's mm -hmm. conscious evolution of one individual at a time. And then we become the light spreaders. Mm -hmm. And when you're able to lift yourself up, you naturally lift up the people that you touch in your lives. And if you want to do more, you, you lift up more, but you can't do it from a place of suffering. You can't do it from that negative lens. So you gotta, you gotta do yourself first. You gotta work on yourself first. Absolutely. You know, and as it relates to the spiritual bypassing, I think there's a distinction that's important to bring up this idea of pain versus suffering. Pain, very, very human experience. Pain is something that everything experiences, at least physically. And then we have the emotional component, let's say as well. Pain is based on like, there's what happened, you know, maybe like I got burned, I got cut, like my nerve endings are being stimulated. Somebody that I really cared about passed away, like something happened. Suffering, though, there's a reason why suffering can oftentimes last long after the pain subsides, because suffering is the story that we tell ourselves about the pain. And when we can come from that space, maybe it's been months, maybe it's been years, maybe it's been decades since whatever it was happened. And we might still be suffering just as much, but maybe the physical body healed because it was a physical injury or the emotional experience that happened 20 years ago. It's not happening anymore but we're carrying it just as much like the boat in that Buddha story. And from that space, like you said, I have all the respect in the world for everybody and suffering. The experience of suffering is absolutely real. And when people are dealing with it, when they're in the thick of it, it's not something to say, Oh yeah, you know, just put it down. It's not real. It's not that, but it's coming from that space of identifying. Why am I actually feeling what I'm feeling and where am I holding on to it longer than yeah, is necessary really isn't the word I'm looking for, but it's what's coming up right now. Where am I prolonging this suffering? Where am I resisting in this case, like the Tao, this like a metaphor of you're going down a river and the current is going downstream, but you're trying to swim upstream. And so the water is hitting you in the face and it's uncomfortable and you think it's the water's fault, but it's actually because you're trying to go against the current. You're fighting. Yeah. You're fighting what is. And the moment you allow it to go, the pain begins to release and the suffering begins to ease and the grieving process begins and you go through it however long it takes, it takes. And I think that, yeah, like it's not about bypassing, but it is about seeing it, I think, for what it is. Like you said earlier, we often think that our internal experience is caused by the external. I feel the way that I feel because something's happening out there or somebody out there said something, made a comment, whatever it was. But when we realize it's not outside in, it's inside out, it's the internal work because what's inside is being reflected on the outside. And there's a level of peace that gets created in that experience. That's just unlike anything that we deal with if we're not there yet. And when you're a person, um, like in my case, when you're a person who dealt with the stuff within yourself and it's, and it's an ongoing process, right? Where none of us are perfect, but mm -hmm. I've noticed that I can be with somebody else and hold space for them and their pain in a way that I couldn't do if I wasn't healed myself. Oh, yeah. I can sit there and, and I can allow a person to be wherever they are because I am a healed being at, at this point. And it's a continuous, like I said, process, like things come up and then I'm not healed and I have to do it again. But I can't, the, the, the purpose of 
this inner work is not just to ignore the suffering outside of us, but it's also to be that light for that suffering. Because a lot of times people don't, they don't have anyone else in their life and they don't have anything to turn to where they can feel like they can just be. A lot of times we bury our shit for lack of a better word and we carry it with us because we've never actually felt it sat there and allowed ourselves to be with it. But once you actually sit and allow yourself to be with the scary emotions, then you could start to let them go, like you said. Yeah, it, it brings up the idea of, it says in the Tao, if you want to become whole, let yourself be partial. And I interpret it in similar to the way you just said it, this idea of, if I think I need to be whole and I'm not, this goes back to the dukkha, like the wanting, I want to be whole, but the implication is I'm not. And so I'm always striving and I'm never going to feel whole. But if I allow myself to just fully accept myself as I am, then like you said, like you got to feel it to heal it kind of thing. Then the healing begins. But if I allow myself to say, you know what? I fully accept me as I am. Doesn't mean I can't improve in this human experience, but if I fully accept me where I'm at right now, I actually paradoxically ish, I have this experience of wholeness because I'm fully okay with me right now where I'm at, given whatever I've gone through up until this point, without ha without having this need to be somewhere else. And one of the translations says, if you want to be whole, let yourself be broken also, which I think is so interesting. Yes. It's, it's, it's just another um, thing that I teach and that I write about, and don't just sit there, do nothing, is accept what is. You can only go from there once you accept what is. And if you have been playing a role and wearing that mask and you have, but you've been secretly carrying your own pain, then you've not accepted it. So if you stop and give yourself the space to accept the brokenness, that's when you move towards wholeness. Yeah. And, and that's beautifully said. It goes back to this idea of the obstacle is the way. It's not until I say, okay, wherever I'm at right now, whatever happened, it happened. I'm here. Now what? Until you get there. You can't go to the now what because you're still resisting and fighting what is because we're in our internal story. Like I have this distinction I share with clients, preference versus expectation. Preference is what I would have liked to happen. Expectation is what should have happened or supposed to have happened in quotes, because who am I to say what should have happened? I have no That's idea. Right. It's like whatever happened, happened. But if I'm trapped in the expectation, I'm having this mental war against reality where I lose every time. <laughs> yeah, I give myself a second. Like I, I remember this feeling, anyone who's ever commuted like or lived in the city and um, missing a subway by a second, you know, you're trying to get to work on time, you miss the subway and then you're like, oh, if I only didn't stop to tie my shoe or if I did, and I used to do that. Like how many of us spent time thinking, if only I didn't do this, if only I didn't do that, then that would have worked out the way I wanted to. I literally give myself a second now because I'm like, who cares? Like any energy right now spent on what if and or if I had or what any all of those they're just games of the mind if any time spent on that is a waste so I give myself a second and then you're like this is what's happened and now we're just go from here mm, and yeah. miss the subway <laughs> <laughs> the last um, passage I wanted to share and we can go back and forth on it. it it reminds me of what you said about someone says oh you know she's a writer and maybe you cringe a little bit and the Tao that I have read, it says, he who defines himself can't know who he really is 
only in being lived by the Tao can you be truly yourself. Can you speak to that? What that means to you? Yeah, for me, um, and and you know, it's it's actually kind of dumb. I am right now a writer, but I ha- I'm much more than than a writer, and we're all much more than whatever. I mean, like, who is just a lawyer? You know, nobody is whatever it is that you labels we put, but we get so comfortable. We get so comfortable with that. So where we meet someone like, oh, what do you do? Like, who cares? To me, it's like, who cares? I, I don't even ask that question. And I hope it doesn't annoy people. But I just, to me, the fullness of people is so much more interesting than the limited definitions. Yeah. And I also find, I love part, that part of the verse that says, that says that only letting yourself be lived by the Tao. Can you really be yeah. you? And a lot of times, it, it, to me, it's a, that's the experience of channeling. Um, and I, you know, or inspired action. Uh, when I write, I'm really, if I'm really in the zone, I'm able to get out of my own way. So then Jesse's not there. Yeah. Um, and it's, that's when the best, that's why I always think my, my second book is better than my first and my third that I'm writing now is going to be better than the second. And that's the growth you were talking about. I think about our own personal growth. It's because I'm better able to become that channel for the Tao. Mm. And we could do that in anything we do. Like there's, there's the doer in us and there's the witness, the yeah. witness that just watches things happen. And the more we're able to sit back a little bit and let ourselves play the parts we're meant to play. Here I am mothering, here I am writing, here, you know, but if you're really letting the Tao work through you, all of the stuff that you're doing, all of your roles that you play, they're just done in a higher level. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, for people who are listening, think of it like a flow state. You know, you think of an athlete or a writer or an artist, a musician, and and it applies to every other category too that I'm not mentioning. You get into a space where it feels as if you're not doing anything and yet it's being done. Like you're dancing and you become one with the song and you kind of forgot about your body and you're not the one saying, all right, I'm going to move my left hand up 15 degrees. Like you're not doing that at all. Your arm's just moving and the body is just flowing with the song. And it's almost as if your body is an extension of the orchestra, of the music, of the music, but you're not doing it. And so in that same way, you're in a flow state in athletics and you're just playing better than like you've ever played, but it, it's like, it's happening and you're kind of witnessing it, but you're kind of checked out a little bit. <laughs> it's, 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 it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, um, you know what? We all do it. Sometimes we all drive. Are we thinking about every single mechanism of the driving that's, that's going on that we have to control? We just drive and our mind is often elsewhere. And it's, it's, um, and I write about the flow state. So it's interesting that you brought it up because the Tao also says the Tao does nothing yet leaves nothing undone. That's that flow state. That's when you're not really even the one doing it. When you realize like anyone who's accomplished, you know, any Michael Jordan, anyone who's accomplished amazing feats, they had to get out of the way in order to be able to do things that are like beyond the beyond. Like you need to become part of that flow state where the energy of what you're doing becomes one with what you're being. So like the person disappears. The person is just the creation. Yeah. What's being created. Well said. And so as we begin to wrap up today, you know, the foundation of this podcast, the foundation of my work, it's to help people create an extraordinary life without regret, a life on their terms, a life that they're just in love with. 
Um, if somebody were asking you, you know, Jesse, how do I create an extraordinary life without regret? How would you advise or how, what would that mean to you? Like, how would you answer that? I would answer that the answer to that question is within the person themselves. And when they start giving themselves time, for lack of a better word, to don't just sit there, do nothing. When they start giving themselves time to reconnect with themselves, they will hear the answers. It's to start to trust that inner voice that lives within each of us, that inner voice that is the voice of the Tao, the voice of God, the voice of your higher self, your intuition, you call it what you will. We each have it. And many of us have ceased to hear it because of all of the noise. We live with so much noise. More, you know, right now we consume more information in a day than just a couple hundred years ago people did in their entire lifetime. So we need to carve out those moments. And it could be sitting on a meditation pillar. It could be walking amongst trees. You figure out what that space is for you. Could be running, but you leave yourself space with yourself to hear the voice of God, the voice of your higher self, to hear it within you. And that will give you the answers. Wonderful. Something that you just said, um, I love the title of your book because it reminds me of this expression, you know, because people would say, don't just sit there, do something. And yeah. I remember hearing, I think it was Zen, a Zen Buddhist idea, but it's like, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> right, 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 right. So can you please share with us a little bit about your book? And for anyone who's interested, how they can find that? Sure. So don't just sit there, do nothing's available everywhere. Um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, indie bookstores. Um, and then everything about me is on jessiekanzer.com. That's J-E-S-S-I-E-K-A-N-Z-E-R.com. There's information about my current book, my next book, and links to uh, to where you can get a copy. Or it's also av- available on audio, which I narrated. So that's a version too. That's fantastic. Uh, myself, and I know a lot of people, they love it when the author does their own. Uh, yeah. You catch like the essence of what you're trying to say in there. And well, so- yeah, I believe I believe um, in everything that we do. We also put our energy into it. So that's why it's nice to be the one to put the energy into the audio. For sure. So if our conversation today was your last opportunity to share your message, to share what's on your heart with everyone listening, what would you love to leave them with? You're all right. Mm-hmm. You are beautiful and perfect and divine just the way you are. And if you can tap into that space, then you can walk the way to create the life that reflects that beauty. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, The links that Jesse talked about for her website, for her book and her, I think it's Instagram and social media. I'll have it all in the show notes. There was a passage that I picked out that I thought was a wonderful way to end our conversation from the Tao. The master gives himself up to whatever the moment brings. He knows that he is going to die and he has nothing left to hold on to. No illusions in his mind, no resistance in his body. He doesn't think about his actions. They flow from the core of his being. He holds nothing back from life. Therefore, he is ready for death as a man is ready for sleep after a good day's work. And I think about it from the space of my invitation for everyone. What if you lived your life in such a way that when your head hits the pillow tonight or wherever you're sleeping, you could think, wow, what a day. Like I really squeezed the juice out of life today. I really experienced it. I really, I wasn't just alive. Like I lived. And from that space every day, you know, you're not, you're not afraid of death. Most people I find are afraid of dying because they're, they know at some level they're not actually living. 
And so if we can come from that space of make every day as if it's your last and really live it like that, it's incredible how we can shift our shift our experience of life. Any comment on that before we, we close up? Yes, I would just um, add to that because I think a lot of times people feel that that means like doing a lot and it doesn't necessarily. It just means learning to squeeze the juice out of every moment. Mm. So if your day is slow, squeeze the juice out of those slow moments. Enjoy the slowness. Enjoy the stillness. It's not about exactly what you're doing. It's about what you're being in the doing. And are you here? Are you here? A lot of times we miss our lives because we're not here. We're planning or we're ruminating on the past. So if you can bring yourself back to the moment over and over and over again, whatever the moment is, then you're living fully. Absolutely. For our listeners, if you enjoyed our conversation today, as always, I encourage you to re-listen to it. I think Jesse dropped so many beautiful gold nuggets that will help you in your life. If this has benefited, please share it far and wide. I know so many people can benefit from her words, her book, everything she's putting out there. And please leave a review wherever you're tuning into this. It really goes a long way, helps with the algorithm, helps people find the show. Before we wrap up, Jesse, any closing comments? Oh, just a big thank you to you for providing this space for, for all of us. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Like I said in the beginning, you know, my life's work is to help leaders, champions, and high performers to experience more happiness, peace, and fulfillment as they create an extraordinary life without regret. If there's anything you're going through right now that you'd like support with, I'd love to have a conversation with you, see if we can make some miracles happen in your life. You can book that call at my website, jamilsayage.com. And if you're looking for additional content, there's hundreds of pieces of content, videos, blogs, quotes on my website, not my website, on my Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can look me up at Dr. Jamil Sayage, DR in my name, or just Facebook and LinkedIn is Jamil Sayage. I'll have the links in addition to everything Jesse shared below in the show notes. I call the podcast Transformation Starts Today because I find most people's favorite day to change their life is tomorrow. And that's why they stay stuck. But you can be different. You can implement what we talked about today and you can begin seeing a change in your experience of life starting today. And I know that you'll be very happy that you did that. Wishing you all the best, all my love, and I'll talk to you next time. Take care. Thank you for being with us today. If this conversation served you, it would mean a lot if you left a review and shared this with anyone who may benefit. An extraordinary life without regret is available to you now. Choose it. It's your time.